gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe here in this great hall of justice. Superheroes have to be around other superheroes. You know what I mean? That's the Hall of Justice is more about them just commiserating about their powers and less about them like actually fighting crime. Seth Everett is the best there is at what he does, bub. And what he does is the Hall of Justice podcast. Go, go, go with a smile. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Hall of Justice. This is episode 262. And if you're listening to this in the month of December 2021, uh, all I say is I hope you're enjoying your holiday season. I hope everybody is being safe. Uh, we appreciate all the subscribers and the people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis. And the tweets, the, the, the complimentary tweets have been something I really do appreciate. We have an icon here on the show today. Uh, I am so thrilled to introduce this person to our audience. Although, if you've read comic books in the last 30 years, you know his work. You, you definitely know his work. And as creators became more and more famous, this guy's star continued to rise. And it really has been uh, remarkable. He's still writing. He's still doing comics. And that's part of what we want to have uh, him to talk about. But we also will address the big elephant in the room, the death of Superman and the reign of the Superman and all of that. He was uh, instrumental in all of that. Dan Jurgens is here on the show. Dan, welcome to the Hall of Justice. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be here, Seth. Good morning. It's good morning to you. And, you know, the, the, the interesting part about this comics run is you know, when you do your research, you've been writing comics for, for literally decades, but then it always comes back to the death of Superman. And, you know, we can we can start the show with that. We can end the show with that. But the reality of it is it always seems to come back to that. Is is that something that you notice in your professional life? Does it always come back to the death of Superman? Uh, well, Yes and no, and and not to be evasive, but I think there's a little bit of that happening now just because we, um, in 2022, will be coming up on the 30th anniversary of the death of wow. Superman. That's so wild. because of that, it's kind of bubbling up again. And, and some of that is, I think, due to this notion that we're starting to see a fair amount of uh, anniversary talk of mm -hmm. what did happen 30 years ago. Some of it is in terms of, you know, image comics which started yeah. up and, yeah sure and so you know we've had these things <clears throat> that are bubbling up just as part of that and then also i think what has happened during the pandemic um is that nostalgia seems to have become a bigger part of things and I, I guess we should have expected that but certainly what we're seeing is this fondness for <laughs> maybe let's call it a simpler time and more of a fun time. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think that's also part of it. A less toxic time. Um, a less toxic time. Yes. Uh, full disclosure. And I've said this on the podcast before, I was not a comic book fan uh, growing up. I was an animation fan. I was a big cartoon nut, but in college in 1992, I was working for the campus TV station and I got sent to do a story on the death of Superman, on Superman 75. It had come out that week. It was a very slow news time. And I remember going to my first ever comic book shop. I was 18 years old. And I came in and I said, wow, this is, this is intense. And then I came back weeks later just because I wanted to see it for myself. And it was around, uh, it, was, it was a little bit of time after. And it was when Hal Jordan went bananas. And when that happened, I said, wow, this is, I'm the target demo for this. And it was amazing to me because that was never communicated to me as a kid. I always always thought that comic books were for kids. They have had an adult theme, a, a thematic uh, maturity for a long, long time. And that's before the 1990s. 
it really started in the 80s. Was that something you embraced? It's coincidentally, when you got involved, you saw the evolution of what the comic book storyline was. You know, I did, yes. But I don't know that I would necessarily uh, take it with the word adult. I, I thought of it more as just not nine or 10 year olds. Okay. So, and I, and I think, for example, with the Superman books uh, of that time, <clears throat> really what we were, I think, targeting, and targeting is probably too strong a word, but, but I think what we were kind of working toward was that more like 15, 16 year old, that, that 13 mm -hmm. to 16 year old, um, which I think in terms of DC Comics, that, that they had always been working uh, for an audience a little younger than that. And, mm -hmm. and I only say that based on my own tastes, where by the time I was that age, 13 or so, I wasn't finding as much as I liked at DC as of what I was finding at Marvel. So I, I think what we had done was we took a lot of the Marvel sensibilities, brought it to the Superman books in general, and we're really doing Superman as a Marvel comic. Mm, interesting. That's a, that's, a, that's a great point because Marvel was perceived as the, the, the grounded. It was the real life. It was, you know, Peter Parker was broke and, you know, the, 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 the Fantastic Four had that fancy Baxter building and things like that, which, by the way, was the alternative name for this podcast. It was going to be if you're old enough to know what the Baxter building is, you're our demographic. But we didn't think that had the same cachet. Um, well, yeah, I mean, well, the Baxter building would have <clears throat> if we were to tie Hall of Justice to the <laughs> Super Friends cartoon, right. the, the Baxter building predated that by a good long time. So uh, right. those are two different demographics. That's, it's a very different demographic. That's a great point. Um, the the greatest part of the story that I was always fascinated by uh, in the documentaries that I've seen, because you know, when you have not one, not two, but three animated movies based on the storyline. Um, there's been a lot of a, a lot of bonus features and things like that is this meeting that you guys used to have you used to gather all the writers and editors and artists uh in a hotel you spend a weekend together and you'd plan the year and you guys were planning on marrying lois and clark you had just uh, revealed clark's secret to lois and then all of a sudden abc television is has this show lois and clark the new adventures of Superman with Dean Kane, who's been on this podcast, Terry Hatcher, who needs to be on this podcast. Uh, but the reality of that was someone, and I don't know who, who it was, just says, well, let's just kill him. If you could just take me in that room and what that day was like and how nonchalant it might have been that conversation, yet it would define all of your careers. It wasn't that nonchalant. You know, we have kind of a myth that has come out of that that isn't, I think, necessarily accurate. And some of it is because of, you know, these documentaries or whatever. I don't think I'm in any of them. Uh, <clears throat> so that's, what, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I know. But you know what? Hey, um, I think, so here's, here's what happened. Yes, we, we had had plans to do a Superman or Clark and Lois wedding. And yes, the TV series felt that they wanted to build toward that as well. So we should not predate them that what we should do is target a point in the future when they would do it both on the show and we would do it in the book. So, okay, fine. That story was taken out. What are we going to do? And we knew that we were going to be meeting um, like November, you know, 1st, 2nd and 3rd in New York. And uh, that was in 1991. So that was 30 years ago. And um, before I was going into the meeting, I knew that you know, that plan had been scuttled. And I don't know that all the creators had necessarily known about that. Now, earlier in meetings, we had talked about the death of Superman as a potential storyline. We never got into it deep. We never thought the time was right. Um, but, but we had talked about it just a little bit. So I know that before I even went into the meeting, I, I talked with Jerry Ordway on the phone. I, I talked, I think with Brett Breeding, on the phone and just said, yeah, maybe this is where we do the death of Superman. So by the time we sat down in that meeting, I had this yellow legal pad 
And on it, I had two ideas written. One was Death of Superman. The other one was Monster Trashes Metropolis. <clears throat> and that was key to it because at that time, Superman's villains were generally a very, you know, civilian-oriented bunch. Lex Luthor did not have a battle suit. He did not have superpowers at that right, time. He was a CEO. That was the, from John Byrne's uh, comic right. run in the 1980s. Right. And, and so that is who Luthor was. And then in addition to that, you know, we had villains like the Prankster and Toy Man. Again, people that are, are villains that Superman could not hit. Uh, we had Brainiac, uh, who had been substantially different, a guy in a business suit sort of thing. We had Mr. Z, a guy in a suit. And, and in a way, some of the villains were patterned more on the Superman TV series from the 50s. I just wanted to be able to draw a knockdown drag out fight. So that's why I had Monster Crashes Metropolis. And I had this initial quick sketch of Doomsday, which is posted on my website, danjurgens.com. So I went in and, and we sat there and I kind of said, well, you know, what are we going to do? Everyone threw out ideas. And I said, oh, maybe we do the death of Superman. And I don't know how many people heard me or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I believe Roger did. But, you know, Roger Stern, you're right. Roger Stern, yes, I'm sorry. And then a little later, you know, we went through ideas we didn't like. And then I believe Jerry said something like, oh, maybe we just kill him. And then we started talking about the idea more. And the whole idea is not to do the death of Superman, just to do the story of his death. But it was to be this. What can we say about Superman if we don't have him in the books? And so really what we started talking about mm. much more then was the effect of Superman's death. And that, so we, we were sort of laying out the funeral for a friend storyline yep, yep. before we ever even got into the death of. And, and we got so interested in that, we said, okay, this is where we wanna go. So how does the death happen? Is it Luthor? Is it Brainiac? Is it somebody else? And <clears throat> then we started talking about this idea I had of you know shredding Metropolis. And maybe that is the vehicle that gets us to the death of Superman. Maybe that's what the connectivity is. And then those two ideas merged together. Um, is this all in the in the hotel? Is this all face to face, or is this now through? Oh no, we are, I, I I should have clarified more. No, this is all in the DC conference room. Mm. Uh, you know, like on a Saturday or a Sunday when no one else was really around, starting to plan this out. And it was the entire creative team. So we had all the artists there. We all had, we had the writers there. When I say artists, that includes anchors and colorists as well. Mm -hmm. um mike carlin who is the editor of the books was sure. there as well as the assistants so Another white whale for the guest of this podcast yeah oh, okay yeah and so <laughs> that's really what it was and um you know we really started talking about it and in fact at that point we said okay what does this monster look like and all the artists uh so that would have been you know grummet was there john bogdanov was there uh, butch geis was there <clears throat> they all drew a little doodle of what, or a sketch of what that monster might be. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, mine was, <clears throat> mine, we voted and mine was chosen and that's where Doomsday was born and the visual that went along with it. So all, it all came out of this like yellow legal pad that I had. Wow. That's an, it's, it's an incredible story. And it, it just, it, it grew to such a level um, that you guys, it really showed great teamwork and that group had stayed very much together throughout most of the run. Correct. It seemed like from the time where you introduced doomsday to the end of reign of the Superman, it's pretty much the same group. Yeah. You know, one person here or there came and gone, but it's the same unit. Was there the camaraderie that it looked like? Yes, there was, uh, you know. And is that common in the comic book industry? Because from what I've heard, that was the exception, not the rule. Well, it was certainly the exception because it involved so many people. And, and I would also say what's important to note is this idea of connected books and everything was something that was allowed to grow organically. So uh, I had been on the books for a couple of years by then and um, <clears throat> originally, you know, I started as, as an artist and, uh, George Perez was writing my book and the then great, the great George Perez. And yes, if you're listening to this, uh, he, he has some health issues, 
if you're listening to this when it's being released in December 2021, our thoughts go out to George Perez uh, unequivocally. Uh, if you're listening to this in the future, by the way, do us a favor. Let us know how the flying car is. Continue. Yeah, well, so, <laughs> but, um, you know, we started connecting the books. Originally, it was just two books. You know, it was Superman and Adventures of Superman. Action comics under John Byrne had been kind of the team-up book, sort of a brave and bold version of, of the Superman title. And then, you know, when I joined, we had three. Then John and John Bogdanov and Louise Simonson joined the band. And we became four books. And we had connected them a little bit um, with their first issue in telling a connected story. So we, we, were, we had slowly experimented with this idea of expanded storytelling where the, the main story would connect across the books as would some of the subplots, while at the same time, each book still retained its own identity. We then did it again with a storyline called Panic in the Sky, in which we have, you know, Mongol and War World and all these other things that I guess, you know, they're doing all over again, good for them. And then, um, you know, we were then able to expand even more with the death of Superman. So we had grown this, this technique of, <clears throat> pardon me, telling a connected story across multiple titles with four different writers and four different artistic teams. And you're pu and publishing we, a monthly book, but the story's coming out weekly. Right. And, and I think that the, the one thing I will always say, well, any group of creators is always going to have differences. We were always able to bridge that because I think we all saw Superman the same way. You know, I don't remember us ever having arguments or fights about how Superman would react to anything. Mm -hmm. And that's because we all had a common vision for the character. And, and once you have that, then anything else is something you can deal with. <clears throat> so we were fortunate enough to have that. And yes, by the time we did Death of Superman, we all got so passionate about the story and about what we could say about the character and his importance to the world that, yeah, we got along quite well when we did it. The, the whole thing is, is fascinated. Um, how much had you written uh, of the return and the funeral? I, 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 obviously, I'm encompassing the funeral for a friend, which is a great uh, series. Um, that cover that you did with the, the funeral, where all the heroes are like in a semicircle uh, surrounding the casket is just gorgeous. Um, the How much of that was completed or at least written before the reaction came about meaning the the news stories and the media interest and then the sales numbers and the the armbands and all those things when how far had you gotten before you know so are you writing part of it knowing how what a big deal it was not really so uh if we go back to that meeting we planned out the entire death of Superman sequence and everything that took us up through Superman 77 um, in that meeting. And, and 70, Superman 77 is really where we sort of, uh, and, and I don't know if people will remember this, we stopped publication of all the Superman. Yeah, yeah. So we, we did death of Superman, Superman, and that happened in 75. That came out in November of 1992. Then we published like uh, two more months worth of books that got us through the Funeral for a Friend storyline. And then we stopped. And, and there were no Superman books <clears throat> for a time. We did specials. There was like something called the Newstime magazine. And there was a poster yeah. pinup book and things like that that were done. But <clears throat> what happened is there were no Superman comics in the solicitations. Uh, and at that time, we had three distributors so that when those catalogs came out, there were no Superman comics listed. It looked like Superman was done and gone away. And that's as far as we had gone in our planning. So, you know, certainly by the time I was writing and drawing Superman 75, word had gotten out a little bit that we were doing okay. this storyline called The Death of Superman. Um, you know, it had been solicited in an earlier catalog, just because they were doing this stuff. We, we had done the part with Doomsday escaping from the underground cell and things like that. So there was awareness of it, but 
we did not know at all how we were going to bring Superman back. When we were going to do it for sure, we figured, yeah, if we do, it's going to involve Adventures of Superman 500 because that was next up on the docket. Right. But we did not plan that storyline at all. And nor did we plan anything about how we'd come back. We, we just, we took the easy, easy way out, man. I mean, we said, we're doing the death of Superman. He dies and then we're going to go take a break. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Um, so the firestorm happens and again, you know, I, I didn't want to just have you on to talk, talk about this. So I want to uh, kind of put a bow uh, on it. Um, what has been your reaction to the first animated feature that, you know, that, that had it, uh, the reference to doomsday in the justice league cartoon. Uh, I think I'm flipping the order. Um, and then the, the recent two part feature, the death of Superman and the reign of the Superman, um, James Tucker, came, I, I will have the caveat on this. James Tucker came on the podcast and said there was like literally a flip of the coin and that if James Tucker was executive producer, they had to make it, it within the, the, the universe, that new 52 universe of storyline. But if Bruce Tim had gotten his hands on it, it was going to be a Dan Jurgens tribute. Like it would have been just your artwork animated. What has been your take on all the reinterpretations of that story? My interpretation is somewhat the same as it is for <clears throat> all the Booster Gold action figures that have been done, which is okay. I, I haven't found one yet that I totally embrace. <laughs> they, they have their good points. And I think it's true oh, yeah. of these adaptations as well. And, you know, the first one was so short that and didn't contain you know, the return as we did it and everything else. Of course. That, um, you know, it, it was such a distant adaptation that, that I appreciate what it is that they did within the constraints that they had. Mm -hmm. So that the second time out, when they were able to do it as a two-parter, uh, I thought that was much, much more effective. I certainly understand why they did the Justice League as they did, which was you know, the more common all-star Justice League. Because right, the, they kept uh, it in continuity with what they had been doing right. with the other movies. Yeah, yeah. And, and I totally understand that. Still, at the same time, I think I would have liked it. I, I would have liked to have seen something that took off more on the storyline that we did. Because I think one of the things that really helped to sell it is, you know, I was writing and drawing the Superman title at that time. I was also writing and drawing Justice League at that mm -hmm. time. So when we planned out the death of Superman, I said, you know what? We can really involve the entire DC universe here because I know the guy who's doing Justice League pretty well and I can get him to go along with us. <laughs> so then I pulled in, you know, two issues of the Justice League that coincided with that. And I think that helped make it feel more like a DC universe event. Um, you know, and, and there's still, I think, a lot of fondness for that version of the league with Fire and Ice and Booster and Blue Beetle and Guy Gardner. Maxima, yeah. So I, I just think, you know, I'm still waiting for that um, more truthful, if you will, uh, more accurate adaptation. We may never get it. I'm very glad we've had the ones we have. And there's a lot to like about them, uh, especially, you know, the two-parter. But I'm still waiting to kind of see our story. Right. Well, the one thing I'll say, um, and I and I said this on the podcast when we reviewed those films, uh, that the storyline of the comic book from from your guy's book, um, that Superman is representative of whatever Superman you grew up with. So, for example, if if George Reeves is your Superman, he's that guy. If Christopher Reeve was your guy, that's he's that guy. If you were a Super Friends fan, if you watched the Ruby Spears animated show, he was that guy. If you were just a reader from the John Byrne era on, he's that guy. He was a, 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 a combination of all of that so that when he dies, you feel a loss. Whereas the, the New 52, and I, I joke on the podcast about the underwear. It's not about the underwear, but that character in the post new 52 was based more on the movie man of steel. Superman was kind of a dick and 
the loss of him doesn't resonate. And it, it's only because you don't love that character. You haven't been given a reason yet to love that version so that when he dies, you don't feel it. And I think that's the biggest difference between what you guys did. You guys did the iconic Superman, whatever. And again, this is not to say, you know, George, Christopher Reeve is, is your Superman. It's literally whatever Superman you loved, he died in the animated. It was that guy died and you didn't feel his loss. Yeah, it w- I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. Um, and, and I think it's because, well, I don't know if it's because I would just say this and, and that is <clears throat> we did, I think a very human Superman and Clark Kent, his connection with Lois Lane is imperative in making him that way. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, what I've always said is you go back to action comics, number one, 1938, not only did Superman debut there, but Lois Lane did as well. As a female reporter, like I say, in 1938, and and she's been a part of Superman's life every bit as much, and she helps, I think, to humanize Superman. If you're New 52 Superman, once you have a relationship with Wonder Woman, that's no longer the same uh, humanization of it all. And as much as everyone wants to see, I think, see Wonder Woman as a feminist icon, I really think it should be Lois Lane. Not that Wonder Woman shouldn't be, but- No, no, I, I, I understand yeah. the context of what you're saying. I, I, yeah. totally, I totally get it. I, 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 my whole thing, Heath Corson came on this show very, very early on in the podcast and just said that Warner Brothers made, told us to make him a jerk. <laughs> like, and, 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 you, and you sense it, and you sense it. And everyone jokes about this social media obsession with underwear. It's not that. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the costume. It's the, what the costume represents and the change in his personality. What was it like? I just, I I think it's rather obvious that the amount of people in at at various times in control of Superman who Mm -hmm. understand Superman, it's a pretty small group that actually understand the character, because Mm -hmm. I think there's always been this temptation to make him harder edge and to make him a jerk. And what I have always said is, look, Batman is who we are. Superman is who we should aspire to be. And if having someone who serves as that somehow, there's nothing corny about that. That's more a commentary on us and our failings than it is on Superman. So I think there are things you can lean into uh, and not run away from. Well, that that goes to another point that's been an overall theme on this podcast, which is uh, an, an interview that Bruce Tim did in the 90s uh, when the Superman animated series came out, the Tim Daly show. And he basically said that writing Superman is really hard. So their choice was to power him down to to make the the, 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 the plots, you know, more you know, conceivable. And what I took away from that back then is good. The analogy that I make is I like it to be hard because we have seen great Superman storylines throughout history, whether it's in animation, live action, in comic books, whatever, you know, literature, whatever it is. And when you have a great Superman story, knowing that that's hard makes the achievement that much more admirable. Do you understand? Do you do you subscribe to that theory? One hundred percent. Um, you know, early, well, when you look at our stuff that we were doing earlier, uh, and and some of this was established under John Byrne, uh, is they did sort of depower Superman at that time. Prior to John coming, Superman's power level was, I mean, through the roof, yeah, extraordinary. Could move a planet, Mark Wade said on the podcast, he could move a planet, yeah, and and so you know, all of a sudden we were seeing Superman flying into space and he had to bring an oxygen belt with him. And and I think those things where we see, you know, Superman has to work and strive hard to get these things done. uh, I I do think they're good. It makes him more heroic. It makes him a little more relatable. So I think those things are, I think they're great. The analogy is uh, a pitcher. I don't know. I know you're a football fan. I don't know if you're a baseball fan, 
but a pitcher who gets uh, 15 strikeouts in 1994 is uh, it's a harder task than doing it now when they're swinging and missing constantly. It's not to say that, yeah, the guy did strike out 14 guys, but it's not as hard. So, you know, to write a great comic story that involves Superman is that much harder. Well, more power to, you know, no pun intended. Yeah. And uh, by the way, I agree with you on baseball. And yeah, uh, tonight, as people listen to this, I'll be at the Steelers Vikings game. So (laughs) yeah. Um, Yeah. Our, Our little sports toss in for the moment. That's right. If you're listening to this literally on the day it's released, but uh, you'll know also. And I will then tell you, uh, since you brought up football, I don't say this. uh, Subscribe to my Twitch channel because we host Thursday Night Football as part of a partnership with the NFL. Uh, Steelers Vikings is tonight, uh, but we have a a couple more games throughout the the season. And uh, yeah, we we do some sports stuff uh, still in in my career. Um, What was it like? writing comics after this you know we i we've had uh, todd mcfarlane on the show and when they when he left marvel um it, you know everything started to, to to take off you stayed at dc you did also work with marvel but you also are now the guy that killed superman so what was it like getting jobs and what was it like writing common comics that were for lack of a better phrase not less quality but more pedestrian um, you know, I, I, pedestrian is probably the, not the right word. I, I okay. think that Superman, and we all knew this, the death of was such a point of it being its own thing that there is nothing that we can compare to that. There wasn't going to be, we all understood mm. that. Uh, I, I think even now, I will say what comics was over those weeks, we'll never see anything like that again. I, I can't imagine what it would be that would bring people into the shops as we brought people into the shops uh, throughout those weeks. So we all knew that that was going to be the case. I think for me, what I wanted to do is go have fun and tell the stories I wanted to tell. And so, you know, when I did... Um, uh, you know, a couple of years later, Superman, Doomsday, Hunter, Prey, you know, oh, I love that, that was that, to, to, to explain the Doomsday origin in a three-part yeah. bookshelf project. I mean, that was, that was great fun to be able to do. And there again, we were still able to sell, you know, six, 700,000 copies. Um, when we did Superman Aliens, it was the same thing. When I did Zero Hour, which was you know, a five issue crossover, crossover, you know, universe wide event that I wrote and drew and it all came out in five weeks. No one else will ever do that. I mean, like that month, I had six of the top 10 books in the business because I also wrote and drew that month's issue of Superman. So, um, you, you know, I think what it allowed us to do is the kind of stuff we wanted to do. Even in 95, I went to Marvel and did Sensational Spider Man. Uh, then left, then went back to Marvel a couple of years later to do Thor for like a seven-year run. So, I mean, it, to me, um, I think part of working in comics is to be able to tell the stories that you want to tell, to work on the characters you want to work on with the people you want to do them with. And I've always been able to do that and have been very fortunate to be able to do that, that it's, it's been uh, a remarkably good time. I don't think those times are going to exist in the same way again. Uh, it's a very different industry now. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, in the meantime, it's been great fun. You know, it, it's, it's something I, I, I'm glad we did the, 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 the Superman story in the beginning of the podcast, because um, I would, I would hate to bury it. It's just, it's such a, a crowning achievement. And I, I applaud you without kissing your ass. Cause you're already here. It's just a, it's a crowning achievement and you guys should be, uh, so uh, proud of of the work you did and the reaction and the legacy it has uh, lived by. Um, yeah, and, and, and I thank you for that. And I think the, the, I think one of the realities of it is that because it spanned two years, uh, which was 92 was death of and 93 was the return of. And, and because right away we were so dumped on and abused uh, for having done a so-called gimmick 
I think we really got shortchanged during those times. Interesting. Because of the comics intelligentsia yeah, that yeah. said, oh, it's a gimmick, it's a this, it's a that. And social media before social media. Yes. And I don't think um, the project ever got the due it should have for being a high quality story. I mean, we drove so many people into the stores. I do not do a personal appearance ever, 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 where someone doesn't come up and say, and usually more than someone, this is what got me into comics. My totally. dad brought this home from work. My mom went totally. and got it for me. Someone brought me to the store that, and we know, because DC has done uh, some analytics on this, the amount of new people that came into the industry as readers at that time was driven so much by death of. And I don't think that, you know, everybody looks back on it and the legacy of it and everything that came as a result. I don't think the story itself ever got the recognition it should have for being as rock solid as it was for, for doing a definitive story about Superman that addressed who the character was and his importance. And as well as something that by the time it was done from the death of through the return of, was really was, and I'm not here to pat myself on the back, but no, it no. really was an epic achievement for the character and in comics. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And that's just that's just being honest. It's like I said, I'm not here to pat myself on the back, <laughs> um, but I think we can look back on it with clarity that way and 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 see it for what it was now in a way that, uh, like I said, the intelligentsia group wasn't about to allow it at that time. Uh, it, it's incredibly well said, and 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 you 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 exemplified it. It's not the first time you've had this conversation, so <laughs> I have a feeling um, that it, it is something that uh, truly it, it's a legacy thing. It it, it really is uh, Im impressive. A quick note on uh, some of your other work. Like I said, we could go. I don't want to have you on for hours and hours, but uh, you know, the, you, you've written so many iconic characters. One that caught my eye was Terry McGinnis. You wrote uh, Batman Beyond uh, for a good chunk of time. Um, what was that like the opposite way, whereas, you know, Superman has been adapted from the books that you wrote. You're taking a story that originated on a cartoon, on, a, on an animated series. What was that like? You know, it was it was a very different experience. And um, it, so in a way, it was a little bit like um, prior to that, um, I had written Tomb Raider for Top Cow. And oh, okay. yeah, we brought Tomb Raider out, I want to say 99-ish, I think, uh, to great fanfare. That too was the best-selling book in the industry the year it came out. And, and so that was an exercise in adaptation by taking the pre-existing Tomb Raider Lara Croft video game and turning it into a comic. So mm -hmm. It allowed me to realize, gee, you have to write the comic much, much differently than the video game because they are entirely different beasts. So okay, what yeah. I knew about Batman Beyond is um, being in the room more because my kids were a fan of it. Uh, and, and they were watching the show when it first came on from the jazzy, jazzy opening theme and credits and everything. Oh, the show's this, great. Yeah, to this, I think, really interesting idea of having an older Bruce Wayne who could no longer do the job and someone else coming in and, you know, actually swiping Bruce Wayne's Batman suit to, to go out and be Batman again. And the dynamics that went along with that, uh, with a Batman, a new Batman, a more humane Batman, learning to do the things he did with Bruce Wayne in his ear. I just found that really interesting. And I, I found the relationship of Terry McGinnis and Bruce Wayne to be a lot of fun to work on yeah. um, because you know, there's, there's a distance there. So we get to see them come a little bit closer, even though Bruce would always hold himself off. I think someone at arm's length and not want to admit that he had a very human relationship with uh, young Terry McGinnis. Uh, it, 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 it's interesting. It was just, it was wild to see. And, in, you know, to connect your name to it was, was like head turning at, at the time. Um, you've talked about the evolution of the industry. Um, the interesting part about it is there's so much other comics related content out, you know, for example, and I, I've, I've said this on the podcast before, if I watch every episode of the flash, uh, arrow, Hawkeye, WandaVision, 
I see uh, all the, the movies when they come out. I've watched Invincible. I watched Umbrella Academy. Am I not a comic book fan? Because I haven't read a comic book in years. And I wonder about your perspective in that. Um, you stick with comic books. You still write comic books. And that's not a criticism by any stretch. What is your stance on the comics industry as now it's overshadowed, whereas the comics in the 90s, for example, yes, there were TV shows and movies out there, not like this. Not like this, yeah. And I, I know I have had many people uh, say something, I think, very similar to you, which is those things overwhelm us, they overshadow us. And I think there's truth to that. Um, I'm amazed at the amount of people I know who are totally into the Avengers movies, for example, mm -hmm. yet don't pick up Avengers comics and read those. Most all of those people who I've, who I've been able to identify that way don't read anything. And, and I think that's more the reality that, um, you know, how many of those people are reading another type of fiction or whatever it might be. Comics are so much their own art form that, you know, I think what we've lost is this ability for people to access them on general newsstands as kids, that more and more as they have become something to be sold in uh, comic book stores and comic book stores alone or bookstores, that fewer and fewer people are exposed to them in their youth. So then they don't necessarily easily make that shift in great numbers once they're 20 years old. Some do, some don't, a lot don't. And I think, I think it is an issue that is caused by so many different things. It's that, it is the movies. It is the ability to get that same superhero kick for free uh, when you turn on the CW and, and not have to read the comics. And I think it comes from, I, I think it is a problem that comes from a lot of different sources. There's 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 a dichotomy though in all the, the the stuff where you can tell, and when I say you, it's the collective you, it's not you, Dan, or me, Seth. You can tell when the creators of some of these uh, live action and animated properties um, love the source material. Uh, the analogies that you make is you can tell that the guys who made Avengers Endgame loved comic books you can tell that john favreau made the mandalorian he loved star wars but you can also say that there are some things out there when they come out in the world that it's just people cashing a check and it's a showcase of technology and what you can do with cgi um and i'll be honest i i, I think the suicide squad movie is is an example of that you know, Starro is one of the greatest comic book villains and whatever happened to the man of tomorrow is one of the greatest storylines to make him a big giant starfish is is demeaning to the source material, making the Mandarin an alcoholic actor is demeaning to the source material. And it just seems you can tell when they love it and when they don't. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, I, yeah, I, I you know, and I don't know if love is even necessarily the right word. I, I think it's possible to really understand what makes a character work and what makes a character function without having to love the character, but still do a really, really wonderful comic book or movie or something else based about that character. Obviously, the emotion helps, um, but all the emotion in the world doesn't save you if you somehow misperceive who that character is. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. The, uh, the, the ideas of, you know, like I said, you know, we live in this world where I don't want to just do a show where you're just happy that superhero stuff exists. Uh, you know, you want, you want to, you, you want to ask more for, for, you know, for, from yourself and, and, and from what you're doing, what are you working on now? What can you tell us? And what, recently has come out that 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 really um uh pushes you and that brings you the same sense of pride as it has because you you take you seem to from a distance take great pride in the work that you create it's not just okay you finish a book you you you, you finish penciling and then you submit it and you say goodbye i'll talk to you later oh yeah um well you know 
to go with that, one of the things I've always said is <clears throat> if I were an editor, uh, I would work overtime, <clears throat> pardon me, to work with writer artists that, not writers and artists, but writer artists. Uh, and I think some of that is because you get more involvement from that creator. That, that <clears throat> if you work with a writer, that writer is involved in like four other books <clears throat> and for other projects and a writer artist invest invest themselves so emotionally in that project that <clears throat> you know you have their undivided attention because they can do nothing else so that's just reality so i think because of that i have always you know had more of an emotional attachment to my work even if i'm just writing it or just drawing it and and some of that is because even if I'm just writing it, the clarity with which I see the artwork in my mind's eye uh, gets me more into it. Even if the artist doesn't end up drawing that, which is great. I want the artist to feel very involved in enough uh, of, of a partnership to do what it is that they think is right for their art. Uh, I, I'm sort of babbling here. And it will make sense by the time I wrap it up. But yes, <laughs> you're right. So that when I'm done, it isn't just something I do for the hell of it. So of late, I have been writing a series at DC, an eight issue miniseries called Blue and Gold, starring the adventures of Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, which sort of revives them in that relationship that they had during the JLI days of the 90s. And, and it's been a lot of fun. And those two together is always fun because it gives us a chance to do sort of a buddy film in comics. And that is a genre that I think comics has been really short to pick up on. Uh, the buddy film genre. So that's been fun. That's cool. uh, late, uh, I have just been drawing a lot of covers at Marvel. I think my uh, I had a couple of covers for Spider-Man 79 and Hulk number one that came out, I believe just last week. I think there's another one that's out this week for Captain America Iron Man number one. And you'll start to see quite a few more of those coming out over the next few weeks. So that's it's good. I've actually done more drawing probably in the past year than I have in three or four years prior. A lot of people don't do what you do, whereas you, you're the artist and the writer. Um, a lot of people usually only do one, correct? You're the, you're the, uh, the unicorn, correct? I, I wouldn't go so far as to say unicorn. It actually used to be more common than it is now, yeah. And you know, certainly when I was cutting my teeth in the business, whether it was, you know, Frank Miller and Walter Simonson and the stuff they were doing at Marvel oh, and Jim Starlin uh, or even Mike Grell at DC. And I'm probably omitting more. You know, there sure. were a lot of guys who were writing, drawing. Howard Chaikin is another one. They were writing and drawing their own material. Uh, and obviously I started doing it. Um, then you had the image guys when they broke away from Marvel, especially right, to writing and drawing their own material. Yep. There used to be a lot more of that. And, and I think that has changed a, a great deal. And, um, you know, I, I think it's better for the business when there are writer artists. Uh, you referenced Jim Starlin and it brought up, uh, see, this is how tangents happen. Um, you referenced um, Jim Starlin, a guy who created essentially the modern interpretation of Thanos. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about David Aha and his his run on Hawkeye and how it's been basically uh, you know translated into the live action Hawkeye show um, very unceremoniously. Ed Brubaker has talked a lot about his creation of the Winter Soldier, not Bucky Barnes, but he did create the Winter Soldier and this work for hire idea and what they could do uh, with it. Um, if you don't want to touch it, you know, with a 10 foot pole, you're more than, than welcome, but there is a growing amount of creators that are seeing their creations when they were work for hires, um, make the parent company in the billions of dollar range. And when that happens, should there be some addendum, it's not a legal issue because you sign contracts, but given that the word billion is connected to it, should there be something more for the comic creator? And do you have an opinion on that or would you rather avoid? 
no, I have an opinion on it. And yeah, there's a lot of people who have been ripped off lately. Um, I, I think that there, there are a couple of things that, um, you know, the, the publishing houses and those who license the material should be better about. And, you know, certainly with the Marvel movies, uh, well, let's talk more about the Marvel TV series because okay. they're very good about giving acknowledgement at the end with some credits, you know, thanks to with the list of creators. That's more than what you see on the CW shows with DC characters. And shame on them for not recognizing the work of the people whose work they are adapting. Huh. And especially if you have all their comics in the room and pictures up on the writer's board that is very much saying, this is our source material, yet you don't acknowledge it. And I've heard all the bullshit about, well, created means something different with TV. And it's like, I don't care. Yeah, you should yeah. be acknowledging it in terms of what your source material is 100%. Uh, that's, that kind of addresses the concept of storylines that are being used. In terms of characters, character equity for creators is a very important issue. Um, you know, I have equity in characters that have been used in TV and film and do see the money that comes from that. It's very much appreciated. It is the Wait, way- Wait, you, you have equity in Doomsday? Yeah, yeah, and a bunch of characters. Yeah, I, yeah, and it's very much appreciated. And also, it is the way it should work. So that if characters are used, yes, there, there should be um, money that goes into the pockets of the creators from whose minds those characters came, that, that there should absolutely be money in a case like that and and but how did you have the wherewithal and i don't mean to cut you off but yeah. how did you have the wherewithal to sign that contract when so many didn't and the reality tony isabella talked about this when he was on this show about the creation of black lightning and the they said that he's the reason why black vulcan for example was used in the super friends because they didn't want to pay tony isabella um I, I did not know that I, I, I had grouped you in and, and your creations of Hank Henshaw and Doomsday and, and, and whatnot. How did you have the wherewithal to sign those contracts then when the current media landscape was inconceivable? The current media landscape was inconceivable, but I think that as a creator, you always recognize that your work has worth. So that when it came to... Um, whether it was Bruce or Gold uh, in the mid-80s, 84, 85, or whether it was characters that came later, you know, as a creator, you're aware that that's always something that is out there. And at the same time, I will say that at DC in those days, whether it was Jeanette Kahn or Paul Levitz or so many more, they also shared that sensibility where they said, yes, creators should make something based on characters that they create. So they were... They were good about it. DC had very good, I think, very professional um, business approaches in those days. It does get a little more elusive when you talk about storylines that are used rather than just using a character. There are two, two different concepts. Character creation creates, in theory, right. character equity, right. um, but using someone's but story- But saying something's the crisis on infinite earths is different. Yes, exactly. And, and so, uh, I, I think what fans don't often realize that even with creation, you know, you have reinterpretations of characters. Well, what does that mean? What is a derivative, derivative character? You know, things like that. Um, if you're the guy who's jumping up and down because you created the seventh character to call himself Robin, I mean, what does that mean? Who gets the credit for that? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, that's, that's a, a derivative character at that point. What does that mean? And uh, a lot of times those issues have to be solved on an individual basis because they come from different places. Uh, it's that's fascinating. And kudos to you for doing so, because you hear so many, we just talked to Judd Winnick on this show um, and he created the red hood, but he didn't create Jason Todd, you know, you know what I'm saying? And so yeah. there's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a fine line. And the only argument that I think is, is valid because each individual contract can be different. You know, each individual person, you know, this is the old expression, don't count other people's money. But the reality of it is, is that once the stories turn into the billion dollar range, when you're talking about these Marvel movies, you know, 
you, you, whatever it happens to be, the comic, I just think the, 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 the Disney's and the Warner Brothers, they can just the good PR alone would be worth it for them. It's chump change. You know, you, yeah. you give these guys a quarter of a million dollars and you, you just you, you walk away from the whole thing looking like heroes as opposed to just being the big, angry, you know, corporate people. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, makes all the sense in the world. I, I, I think it's something uh, we all pretty much agree with. Um, but it is also interesting that once you start to dig deep on some of these things, that, you know, it gets really complex. So Jason Todd, who is Jason Todd? Jason Todd was a Robin. So if, if something happens with Jason Todd, who gets the money? Is it the creators of Jason Todd or is it, you know, Bob Kane who created, well, without, let's avoid the, the complexities of what Bob Kane did and didn't do, but you know what I mean, that Robin was there many, many years earlier. And, and so who gets what? Because otherwise you then set up this cottage industry because this was also happening for a while where a group of creators get together and say, oh, hey, let's create, you know, Hero Man 2 and we'll have equity in him and Popsicle Boy 3. And, you know, you go down the list and then do you not give the money to the original creator? It gets very complex. It really does. And, and, and see, this is why if we had gone down this rabbit hole in the beginning of the podcast, Doomsday is barely a mention yeah. <laughs> on, on the show. So I'm glad we did what we did. Uh, how do you feel about social media? How has social media been uh, in your world? Does it help you sell books? Does it help you sell your work? Uh, is it something that you enjoy? Or is it the cesspool that I ask this question of a lot of our, our guests, and I always get a different answer. I'm curious to get yours. Well, first of all, what it is, it's all of the above. And there are aspects of social media that is a bit of a cesspool. Uh, there are aspects of it that are positive. I don't know that it necessarily helps to sell a lot of comics in the, in the conventional sense where it drives people to the store. I think what you can do is take, make touch with people who are going to the store anyway uh, to perhaps give your book a good look when it's coming out, something like that. Um, I think it's nice because you can build a connection with fans that is appreciated um, on both sides of the aisle. I think one of the things we found out without conventions for a time, uh, when I went to my first convention, I, I was surprised at how much I had missed it. And a lot of it was, I said, because we're writing and drawing these books and they go out and you don't even know if anybody ever reads it, right? Because you never get personal feedback. And you got some on social media, but you do have to be in person to, a, to an extent. So I do think that social media kind of helped keep those connections alive during the pandemic when we didn't have conventions. Yeah. Uh, so there are positive aspects there. But like I said, it's like so many things in life. There are good aspects to it and, and negative aspects. Yeah, there, there, there truly are. Uh, how can people find you online, sir? You can find me at one of two places predominantly. Um, you can go to my website, danjurgens.com. You can, you know, touch base with me there, see uh, uh, what's the latest, if I hopefully have it as updated as I should be. And I tend to be a little tardy on that. I apologize. And then the other place, uh, if you want to find me at Twitter, I am at the Dan Jerkins at Twitter. Very nice. Uh, yes, and you're a great follow on Twitter. Uh, no, no secret about that. That is Dan Jerkins. Uh, comic book fans know his name instantly, but I hope you've heard this in this, this this podcast, this episode, and just gotten a, a sense in what really, really high quality art and high quality writing has led to, and it's a truly remarkable career. Uh, thanks for doing this. Continued success. And uh, let's have you back. Uh, don't wait 260 episodes to come back on the show. You got it. I would love to. That's Dan Jurgens. Our thanks to everybody who's been listening. We are still producing episodes each and every week. Uh, coming up in the next weeks to come, we'll be reviewing the Spider-Man movie. We'll be reviewing Hawkeye and much, much more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Believe it or not, I'm walking on.